Well, good morning again. Two weeks in a row, I'm still here. One of the most... Ex- One of the most exciting discoveries I made this week was, was a place that had some more of my clothes. <laughs> Very exciting, because otherwise you might have thought it was Groundhog Day. I might have been wearing the same Pendleton, and uh, not a good look. But, uh, you know, I just want to take a minute to thank Josh and the praise team. It is such a blessing to worship here. You know what? <laughs> Amen. You know, I just, I, I love it because it always just sets the tone. Uh, you may not know this, but they actually come early in the morning and rehearse, and they rehearse during the week. There's a lot of hard work that goes into it, and uh, I enjoy coming in early and just hearing them go through the set that they're going to do and just helps me to get prompted to worship, and so I hope that does the same for you. All right, well, we are... In part two of a message that I began last week, I wasn't sure how well that was going to go. First week here and split it in two, you might get yourself in trouble. But I was very pleased that uh, most of you enjoyed it and are looking forward to what we're going to talk about today. And so without, without any further delay, I will tell you that we are going through a message titled Intervention, How Fast God Can Change a Story. And in it, we're talking about times in life, times in your life, when you need God to just step in and change the narrative. I mean, just things have digressed to the point where you need the Lord to show up. And we have learned in Scripture that He loves to do that because it brings Him glory. It exalts Him. It's, it, it, it causes us to think more highly of Him, which is really the essence of worship. And so we've been taking a look at the story of a king who lived a long time ago. His name was Jehoshaphat. And we learned last week that Jehoshaphat was a godly man. He not only believed in God, but he practiced it in his life, especially as it came to how he ruled as king. And he used the power of his throne to institute change in his land, known as Judah, which means he brought spiritual reforms. And we learned that he not only went out and got rid of all of the pagan idolatry, that was dishonoring and displeasing to God, but also was leading the people into wickedness. But he also sent priests and officials from his government working in union with one another to teach the people the right way to live, the right things to believe. He, he led them toward the Lord, and because he did, God was very pleased, and when God is pleased, he begins to pour out blessings. And so that's what happened with Jehoshaphat. His kingdom began to reign, his army began to grow, his treasuries got more full, and his enemies were afraid, and God just made him great. But then as we also learned last week, when that happens, we tend to forget about God. We tend to lose our way. And so because of that, Jehoshaphat sort of lost his way uh, as he looked around the surrounding nations and realized that, you know, like most people do that have power, and power can have a corruptive effect. More power is better than less power. And so he was vulnerable by, I think, some insecurity, even though God had blessed him and taken care of him. um, He was vulnerable so that when another king in the area, uh, Ahab, who was the king of Israel, came and proposed that they form an alliance... Jehoshaphat foolishly went along with that and didn't even bother to consult God. And so as a result of his alliance, he's drawn into a war that Ahab 
uh, had instituted with his northern neighbors, the Arameans, and Jehoshaphat brings the Judean army up to join with the Israeli army, and they'd fight this battle. But because God was displeased both with Ahab, who had already judged, and with Jehoshaphat for not having more sense to, to make an alliance with a person like Ahab, both of their armies are crushed. Ahab is killed, and Jehoshaphat winds up running back to Jerusalem with his tail between his legs. When he gets there, he's met by a prophet named Jehu, who rebukes him for his foolishness and tells him that not only was the war a consequence of what he had done, but that there would be discipline from God, which there always is when we lose our way. And in this case, the discipline came in the form of three other nations who bordered them to the east in what would today be modern Jordan. And these three nations saw that Judah had now become vulnerable because of the heavy losses that they had suffered suffered in the Aramean War. And so they decided to move against Judah because God had blessed Judah. They had a lot of wealth. They had a weak army. It was tailor-made for an attack. And so they joined together and they come out for war against Judah. By the time Jehoshaphat learns about it, these troops are mustered at a place called Engedi, which is right off the western coast of the Dead Sea. And essentially, they're about two days away from laying siege to Jerusalem. And so Jehoshaphat does the wise thing. He goes to God and he basically entreats him for help. And he calls all the people of Judah all of their spiritual leaders and their political leaders and the people of import, and he calls them to Jerusalem, and he calls for a fast, and he calls for national prayer, and he leads them in a humble prayer before God, confessing sin and calling for God to keep his promise to care for them, which is so important that he did that, that he remembered that, that God's love can even overrule our foolish mistakes. And so when he does, he asks God to speak, and it says the people all stood before the Lord, and finally God speaks through a prophet by the name of Jehaziel. And Jehaziel, speaking on behalf of God, tells the people that they don't need to be afraid, and they don't need to be confused about everything that's happening, because God, although these armies rising up was a consequence of Jehoshaphat's foolishness, God was going to protect them if they would trust him, which was key. And so the Lord, as good faith of his promise, he tells them, here's where their army is. This is the path that they're going to take through the Judean hills to come up against you. This is the area where they're going to be vulnerable in this valley. And this is where I want you to go out and meet them in war and to be ready. But I want you to know going in, you're not really going to have to fight. I'm not calling you to go into battle. I'm calling you to go and to be my witnesses. I'm going to do something. I want you to see it so that you can not only learn those lessons yourself, but pass them on to your children so that we can have no more of Jehoshaphat's foolishness in trusting in the strength of man versus the strength of God. And so Jehoshaphat is so pleased by God's voice and by God's grace that he humbles himself. The people immediately are thankful. The priests lead everyone in worship, in gratitude, and they get ready for what lies ahead. And we're told that the next day they got up really early, led by Jehoshaphat. They didn't procrastinate. They weren't afraid. They acted by faith. And they began to march out 
to meet these overwhelming forces that they had no prayer of even defending themselves against if everything was just going to go according to the way things normally go. But they believed they had divine help, and so therefore they went boldly. And to that end, as evidence, we're told that Jehoshaphat even restructured his whole thinking about war. Whereas with the Aramean War, he had put all of his faith and all of his trust in both his own soldiers and the soldiers of Ahab. But now, we're told, as they march out to meet this new coalition, he puts a choir in front of the people and even in front of what's left of their army. As a matter of fact, he recruited a new choir so that they could make sure they had the most talented singers out front because this was not going to be a military war. This was going to be a spiritual war, and the way you win those kinds of wars is with praise. So he appoints all these people, and their job, this choir's job, is to go singing praise to God and being thankful to God for both what he's done, but also, and here's the more important part, what he's going to do, what they believe he's going to do. And so off they march with the coalition waiting what was going to happen, starting at verse 22. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah so that they were routed. Okay. We're going to learn a little bit about this coalition in just a minute here, about who these people were and why what they were doing was so foolish. But we want to start with, it says that when they began to sing in praise. Okay, now get the picture. You have all these enemy forces, all of these multitudes of troops. They are ready for combat. And they're right on the front porch of Jerusalem. You have the remnant of the Judean army led by this amazing and wondrous choir going out to face them in battle led by Jehoshaphat. And we're told that as they began to march, the choir began to sing. And we're also told that as soon as they did, something happened. We're told that God immediately, upon hearing their voices, moved against these troops. And what's interesting is it happens right after they start singing, which tells you sometimes when you and I are in a difficult situation where we need God to change things, we need Him to intervene in our life and do something that only He can do, it starts with something very unlikely. Not action on your part to try to resolve the situation, but faith action. Action which looks to God as your resource. Sometimes crazy action. I mean, I'm sure that this army looked as unusual as perhaps the army that was surrounding Jericho and not making any noise and just marching around and then going back to their camp. I mean, it just looked odd. It wasn't conventional military tactics. And yet God is pleased because they step out in faith. They demonstrate their faith by advancing toward battle. I mean, they're moving toward what very well could be in harm's way, but it's in obedience to God. And I thought about that. The slaughter actually takes place while they're en route. By the time they show up, according to verse 24, all these other armies are dead. 
The only thing that they're going to find when they get there is a valley full of dead bodies. But they don't know that going out. They have to start with a large part of what's going to happen being unknown. And yet by faith, they move out in obedience. I thought about that. How often are we paralyzed by circumstances in life and we're afraid to step out in faith until we see God show that it's going to be okay? You know, we want evidence. You know, God, if you'll deliver me, I'll worship you. And in God's economy, it's always reversed. If you'll worship me, then I'll show you what I can do. But those are hard lessons for us because we always want to see things happen in real time. Before, and, and then we're, oh boy, I, I praise you, Lord. But I, I don't think we learned the lessons we need to that way. And it's interesting. It says that the Lord set an ambush. What did God said earlier? You won't have to fight. The battle is mine. I'm not calling you to go fight against this army. I mean, for heaven's sakes, even you know you don't have a prayer. This isn't about you. It's about me. This is my battle. I'm not calling you to be my soldiers. I'm calling you to be my eyewitnesses. What I need you to do is just take a gander about what I'm doing so that you can then begin to tell others. That's it. That's all I'm asking from you. You know, it's interesting. If you go back in Israel's history, and if you know a little bit of the Old Testament, you know that when... Moses finally starts leading the people up toward Canaan after they've spent their 40 years in the wilderness for their lack of faith and their disobedience. When he finally starts taking them up toward Canaan, he takes them toward the east. He doesn't go directly into the southern part of of what today is modern Israel. Instead, he kind of goes around those borders into Jordan, into what would be Saudi Arabia and then into Jordan, And he kind of marches along. And as they start marching up, they start coming across territorial lands that belonged to people who, in fact, were quasi-related to them. And I won't go into all the details of the genealogy and how they related, but basically there were three nations, and they were all sort of related to the Israelis. The Ammonites, the Moabites, the Edomites, they were all related through Abraham and through his descendants. And now we're told that, or we're told back then, that when they went up through these lands, God told them, I don't want you to fight with them. I want you to just go through their land, but don't fight. Don't attack them. Don't take their land. Just go through. I will defend you. I will protect you. But these are your relatives. And I'm blessing them too and protecting them too so you don't attack them. You'll have plenty of people to attack once you finally move into Canaan. But for now, leave these people be. And the Israelis do, even at great difficulty, because some of them actually wanted to fight. But Moses is wise, and they don't. Well, now, after God had gone to all that trouble to protect them, and you can read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 2, now these nations have turned against his people, and in essence are trying to kick them while they're down. And God takes a dim view of that. And so this war was personal. This is the Lord's way of saying, wait a minute. 
I protected you. I held my people back from doing to you what they did to everybody else. And this is how you repay my people by rising up against them and in so doing, rising up against me. Oh, foolish mistake. Which is really another good lesson for us too, to be careful about how you treat God's people. You know, it's amazing to me is how many people today in our country badmouth the church, badmouth God's people. Heck, even people in the church badmouth God's people. Be careful about that. God takes a dim view of those who would go against those who are precious to him. And verse 23, and here's what happened. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped destroy one another. And so what did God do? He turned them against each other. What's the best way to destroy a coalition? Division. Always. Just turn them against each other. We're told that two of them turned against one of them. We're not told why, but we're told that something happened that set them off. And so instead of being focused on who their common enemy was, Judah, they got offended with each other and tore themselves apart. There isn't any application for the church there, I don't think, so we'll move right along. (laughs) But what's interesting is the term that it used about what happened. It says they were devoted to destruction. The men of Ammon and Moab devoted the men of Mount Seir, they were descendants of the Edomites, they devoted them to destruction. In the Old Testament, the word is karim. And it was a very specific term. It was the same term used uh, by God to say, of the people of Jericho, once I finally crush that city and destroy it, that city, everything in it, is under the Karim curse. And without going into a lot of theology, I'll just tell you that what it means is to annihilate something in keeping with God's purpose. The nation of Jericho was a wicked, wicked place. And God was about to make an example of them to the rest of the land whose judgment, we're told, was long overdue because of incredible, incredible wickedness, wickedness that would even today be startling. And so when he starts with Jericho, he says, I don't want you to touch anything because they are karim. And what's interesting is we're told that that's what the men of Ammon and Moab did. They got so mad at this other group that they just decided, you know what? We don't care about the war anymore. You have got to go. And when they did it, it was in complete harmony with God's purpose, which tells you that when God is at work in your life, he will often use natural human events, including people getting angry with each other, including nations squabbling with each other, including war and death. He can use anything to bring about his purpose. He can also use people that are intent on hurting you to actually bless you. How you like them apples? What an amazing God we serve. How full of surprises is he that he can take things that look like they're going to be the end and turn it around. We're told that after 
the people of Judah finally show up. And can you imagine the shocked look that they had on their faces? When they got there thinking, okay, we're about to go over this rise, and down there we're going to see so many people that they can't be counted. I sure hope God does something here. I really hope that he's listening and real. I'm not sure, but by faith I'm going to take a look. And the first scouts look, and then they go back and they tell Jehoshaphat. I'm convinced that when they told Jehoshaphat, he would have had a smile on his face. I knew it. I knew it. When they look over and look down, all they see is a valley full of dead bodies and all kinds of valuable stuff. Everything that these armies had worked so hard to tote all this way from their own home in order to destroy Judah, it was all there for the taking. Wasn't anybody left to put up a fuss. It's, we're told that it took him, imagine, including not just food and supplies and, and horses and the machinery of war, but wealth. Wealth in order to purchase supplies, wealth in order to pay soldiers. It was an incredible treasure. It, we're told that it took Jehoshaphat four days with all of his soldiers to carry everything back to Jerusalem. He went out thinking, man, I hope this isn't a repeat of the debacle with the Arameans. I mean, that was just one nation and they kicked our tail. I can't imagine what three might do. And when he comes back, He's now been taught a real important lesson about the difference between trusting in what you think is best, relying on your own resources, and doing the crazy thing that very few ever do. And that is actually daring to believe that God means what he says and is able to carry it out. All right, now we come to application. How does God intervene? We're going to see three different things in the story here. The first, and, and this is important for you because if you're in that place where you need God to change your narrative, these are the things to watch for and to pray for. Okay, The first is embankment. Embankment. That means God will surround you. He will surround you with who he is and what he can do. We're told in verse 15 that God told the people, this battle isn't yours. You're not going to have to fight this war. It's going to be a very unusual one. You see this repeated many, many times in the Old Testament, where a group that has no business winning, usually the people of God, goes out against overwhelming force and winds up coming back astoundingly as the victor. Then you see other times when it looks like the Israelis or the people of Judah ought to crush whoever they're fighting, and they wind up getting their tail kicked. Why? Because it isn't about you and your resources. That's why the scripture says some men trust in chariots, some men trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Where's your faith when you need the narrative to change, if you think you can change it, if you think other people can change it, if you think resources outside can change it, you are sadly mistaken. You need God to embank you. Listen to this, Psalm 125, verse 2. 
As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people, both now and forevermore. It may not feel like it, but if you're truly seeking God, and if your heart is truly right before him, then God sees you. God surrounds you. Now, that doesn't mean that you're not going to have any trials in your life or any hardship or any sadness or any confusion. Listen, those are all things God uses to build faith. But what you will not be is conquered, okay? Because we're told in the Scripture, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us, talking about Christ. So the first thing that you need to look for and the first thing you need to remind yourself is is that when I truly belong to God, I'm surrounded by him. And God and anybody makes a majority. That's the first thing. The second thing you need is what Jehoshaphat and the people had, and that is expectancy. And by expectancy, I just mean the ability to both trust in God and to look forward to what he says being manifested, coming to pass. And this is especially important in adversity. We always think that life is about our circumstances. It's about what happens to us. We couldn't be more wrong. The more I read the scripture, the more I realize that most of our circumstances, even the most difficult, are really irrelevant from the purpose perspective of God. Now, to us, they matter immensely. But God's purpose in you is often different than your own purpose for yourself. God's purpose in you is to build faith, period, if you're a believer. It's to build faith in you. And if you're not a believer, to generate faith in you so that you might worship him, that you might know him and make him known. And all of your circumstances, in all of the convoluted ways that they can go, and all of the mysterious, like I said last week, chaos of life, are designed to create faith in you. You are far more important to God than what happens to you. And that's why God will allow some really crazy and often unpleasant things to happen to you because he's building in you a greater purpose. One of the few things about your life that's eternal is your faith. It's about really the only thing you're going to take out of here with you. And it's so important that we have that, especially when it's the hardest to do. Most of us tend to have faith until it gets put to the test, which is really should be an indication to us that we don't really maybe have the faith that we think we do. But God wants to build it in you, and he will use adversity to do it. That's why it says in Psalm 121, starting at verse 1, it says, I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord the maker of heaven and earth. That simple principle is usually at the root of everything that happens to you, and especially during the difficult times. Anyone know something that's really funny? Is that the most common way that God often changes your narrative is by changing you. You may go through some difficult circumstances. The, the, the theology, the idea that if I just worship God and I do the right thing, nothing bad will ever happen to me. If, you, if life hasn't beat that out of you by now, then you're more dense than you look. Listen, tough things happen all the time. It isn't about whether tough things are going to happen to us. It's about what those things are going to do in us. Either they're going to weaken us and destroy us and snuff out our faith, or they're going to make our faith stronger. And then we're going to see the deliverance of God, which often comes internally 
rather than externally. Now, does God sometimes lift you out of circumstances into great victory? Yeah, I've been, I mean, you're the answer of that for me, okay? But many times, his best work comes when you're in the darkest corridor of your life. And he can do some amazing work there. And then the last thing is exaltation, which is just another word for worship. We have to worship the Lord. Isaiah 12, 4, give praise to the Lord. Proclaim his name. Make known among the nations what he has done and proclaim that his name is exalted. The only reason that God took the people out to this forsaken valley where they were going to find all these soldiers was so that they could just see what he had done. What does God want to show you? What might God take you through or to in your life to show you just how amazing he can be? Final story. God's with us even when trouble comes to visit. I read an amazing story. This happened back in 2016, March 8th. There was a young man, his name is Landon Cunningham, and he's from Ocala, Florida. And if you know anything about baseball, you know that spring training takes place partly in Florida. And so he had gone with his dad to watch a spring training baseball game. His favorite team, the Atlanta Braves, were playing my favorite team, the woeful Pittsburgh Pirates. And they were having this game. And him and his dad are sitting in the stands, enjoying a snack. It's a sunny day. Game's going on. And Landon wasn't really paying attention. Like most kids, he had his phone out. But he was getting ready to take a selfie of him and his dad to send back home to mom. And as he was doing that, Pittsburgh outfielder Danny Ortiz swung violently at a pitch and lost control of the bat. And it came flying into the stands before they put up those new nets that they have. And it came headed right toward Landon's noggin, basically. And at the very last minute, his dad, who had been similarly distracted, just suddenly did what any good dad would do instinctively. He just stuck his hand up and moved his body over to try to protect his little one. And miraculously, the bat ricocheted right off of his arm before it struck his son and very likely would have either seriously hurt him or perhaps even killed him. Well, afterward... Father and son became celebrities because somebody, of course, somebody always catches this on their camera. And so they went on to the Today Show, and they were talking to this father and son, and the boy said, you know, I didn't have a lot of time to think. Once I realized that it was, or excuse me, this is uh, Sean, the father, saying, I didn't have a lot of time to think. Once I realized it was headed for my son, I just did anything I could to block it and deflect it. And then Landon said, I looked up because my dad said something, but I didn't look up in time, and he put out his wrist to block it. Because of his action, the family was able to breathe a sigh of relief. Um, Sean, the father, he's a firefighter. When his wife found out about it, you can imagine, Mom, when you find out, you took him to a game, and what happened? Um, she got emotional when she saw the picture. She said, I had a hard time um, with it, got nauseous, but thank God he was fine. On the bright side, Landon received from the Braves who heard about what had happened. Um, they sent him actually an autographed jersey of his favorite player who was on the team at the time, Freddie Freeman, the first baseman. And I just thought about that. 
I thought about, here's the son, not really paying attention. All of a sudden, disaster is looming, and the father puts his arm up to block the bat and to keep him safe. I think that's what God does with us when we need him to intervene. And my prayer is that you believe it and act on it. Father, thank you for your word, which is truth. Thank you for your love, which is eternal. Thank you for your protection, which keeps us safe. Even when life is difficult, our hearts are guarded, our souls are secure because of the work that you're doing in and through us. It's such a reassuring thing to know that you see us and you're nearby. I pray that those here today who are struggling and are just crying out to you to change things would sense your presence and begin to see just what you're capable of. In Jesus' name, amen.